This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Glad you could be here today. On the show today, you are going to meet a Western Australian forensic scientist whose company can figure out exactly where certain crops or fruit were grown and even where seafood has been caught. So we can verify back to a a specific fishery where a prawn has come from. Uh, So what we then do is we actually go into retail and into supply chains and take covert samples and then check, you know, are they true to the claim, which is often, is it Australian first? And then which fishery has it come from? And so I'm pleased to say that that wild Australian prawn supply chain is of very high integrity. And you'll learn more about that after news headlines and a look at the weather here in Western Australia just after half past 12 today. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Between now and, well, up until around about half past 12 today, spending quite a bit of time talking about what is going on in the sheep industry and a special focus on the prices because the price of sheep in Western Australia is really making business very difficult for producers in this state and some very big decisions are having to be made right now and also there's the weighing up of the future in the sheep industry going forward. Dan Barnett farms at Barracoppin, 280 kilometres east of Perth and just to highlight the situation, he hosted a special barbecue in the city on Friday afternoon and he really wanted to make the point about what is going on farm to those people who live in the city. Dan, just to sort of flesh out the situation, let's take a look at your place. What is the situation today? Well, the situation at the moment we're in and the rest of the WA producers are probably uh, in the same boat as myself that we're... uh, We've kind of just weaned all our lambs, and it's the time we need to get rid of some mutton. And we're uh, the price has slipped back dramatically in the last uh, kind of month. It's gone, yeah, from three dollars back to a dollar fifty in three or four weeks, and it's looking like it's going to go back to a dollar in probably the next next three weeks. So uh, it's getting down to a level where it's there's just nothing left in it for the farmer so um yeah so you've got to make the call whether you um hang in there try and ride it out and possibly um look at putting a fair bit of feed through them and the grain prices are really really good at the moment so it's a pretty costly exercise to try and run them through for another six or 12 months to hopefully see things turn around but there's not a lot of light at the end of the tunnel at the moment though can you make money out of that at the moment? As you said, the prices have come down dramatically. You're sitting at about a dollar fifty per kilo for mutton at the moment. Is that right, Dan? Yeah, that's right, Linda. There, we're probably um, there's a little bit to be made there at the moment, but there, once everyone has a, their little nibble out of it, uh, so you get ten dollars for shearing, and then there's a your transport costs out of that, and it kind of. Um, yeah, there's not a lot left there at all, really. By the time it gets back to a dollar, there's uh, you're just giving away. 
What's the season been like at your place as far as the the pasture situation goes then, Dan? Yeah, we're probably we're probably luckier than others, Linda, that we did get a, a bit of a start. Um and it set the season. We we gave got us some early feed. Um but things have been pretty yeah, pretty bloody dry. It's been one of the worst ones we've been through. And we're probably at about 155 mil for the year um, so far, and we're usually averaged 330 mil for the year. So, but there's places not far from here that have had kind of 80 to to 100. So they are really feeling some pain. Yeah. So, and the feed situation as it is at your place, um, you know, there's a bit there, but not a great deal, and you certainly don't want to be buying in a lot of grain at the high prices that you need to pay at the moment to keep the sheep ticking over. No, that's right. Yeah, we'll be uh, just kind of scraping through to till harvest till we can get some stubbles. But the stubbles, there won't be a lot of feed in the stubbles. Um, um, so, yeah, that's, that's the tricky one, whether we um, try and get them through the summer and, um, yeah, hopefully see some light at the end of the tunnel. What are your options, Dan? Um, yeah, there's, there's not a lot we could, um, and I've never had to go and never had to shoot sheep before, but it comes a time where, um, if you're just throwing good money after bad, you might just have to, um, make that call and, um, but yeah, hopefully it doesn't get to that. So what are the options you're exploring as far as finding a market? I mean, you know, the processing, the price isn't great to get to the, the processor, as you said, $1. fifty per kilo for the mutton, and, but you've got to be pretty lucky to get a slot any in the first place. That's right, yep. I think we're back out to about three or four weeks before you can get a, get a booking slot now. So um, it's, um, yeah, and that price is just going to be, keep slipping away by the sound of it. I don't, I think they're just, uh, I don't think the abs can handle the numbers at all so um yeah i don't know whether the abs are making a lot out of it either with shark lake folding up shutting their doors last week so it's probably not the abattoirs where um, the money's getting lost along the way somewhere but they're obviously not making a lot out of it either how would you assess the state of the industry today from you know your personal experience what's you know going on with your business and and what you're hearing from other farmers and different people in the in the industry? Yeah, I don't think the industry's been been worse. I don't think it's in. Um, yeah, it's it's probably as bad as I've seen it. Um, yeah, with um, and there's there's no one really on our side either, Belinda. The federal labour government don't seem to, to give a shit about us out here in the bush with them with them wanting to close the. Um, live export trade that's just another um, kick in the guts for the WA sheep producer. You wanted to highlight the the point and the situation that you're in and you well hosted an event in the city basically on Friday. Can you tell me about that? Uh, yeah Linda I had a yeah we were we we're at a stage that we we're um, if we thought well we we're if we're giving these sheep away, we might as well. Uh, if we're not getting paid anything for them, well, we can't really afford to sell them for this, the price that we're getting at the moment. And the people in the city can't afford to buy it. So it's, um, we thought we might as well, uh, we'd rather give it away and um, try and raise some awareness that the prices that people see in the shops is 
nothing like what we're getting paid. And if we can help some people out that are doing it tough along the way, it's, um, it was like, yeah, why not? We'll give it a crack. And, and what did uh, you do? Um, so we've, uh, we killed uh, eight sheep litter. We cut them, cut them up and uh, took a couple of barbecues down to St. Pat's uh, Community Centre in Fremantle. And um, they were happy enough to have us uh, for the day. And um, we were, were allowed to set up there and feed some uh, people that are doing it pretty tough. And, um, yeah, and they were very appreciative. I, I think a lot of a lot of people in Perth, I don't think they just have to be not just the homeless either. I think there's a lot of people struggling in Perth at the moment that are probably walking past sheep in the shops and it's just out of their price range. So they're... Um, yeah, it seems uh, bizarre, doesn't it, when we've got a absolute glut of sheep in the system and people in Perth are just walking past it in the shops because it's bloody, it's too dear. Would you do it again? Would you host another event like that? Yeah, I think we would. Um, it was, uh, yeah, I think everyone involved got a fair bit out of it. Um, and it does open your eyes up to what, is actually going on down in Perth. It's, um, yeah, it was um, quite a yeah quite a moving experience to see um, some of the people coming through, and they they did show a lot of gratitude to what we're yeah really appreciated what we were doing. Well, you're back on the farm today. How do you think this is all going to unfold, Dan? Where's this going? Yeah, it's probably got a bit bigger than I thought it thought it would blend. To tell you the truth, but um, we're going to run with it anyway um the yeah hopefully we can get a get a bit of uh bit of traction and um open some eyes up and possibly the federal labor government might um might actually uh, look like they they give us stuff about us out here but we'll see about that dan thank you so much for being part of the country hour today and i wish you all the best yeah thanks a lot Melinda. cheers Dan Barnett, who farms at Barracoppen, 280 kilometres east of Perth, and giving you an insight to what's happening at his place and the sorts of pressures and challenges he's under and absolutely reflecting what is going on on many properties in many businesses in the farming sector here in WA. Be part of the conversation here on The Country Hour, 0448 922 604. Text through and let me know your story, 0448 Nine double two six zero four. This text just in: We sold our cull ewes last year for one hundred and thirty-seven dollars fifty. This year, fifty-seven dollars thirty. If you've got a story to tell, text it through zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Dan was also talking about the decision by the federal government, the policy to phase out the sheep trade. Just an update on that situation. The panel assessing the best way to transition out of the live sheep trade by sea has been granted an extension to report back to the Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt. The panel was expected to present its report by the end of the month, but now has until the 25th of October. Minister Watt confirmed the federal government's policy to end the trade would not happen during this term of government. He says, we know farmers and other industry participants need time to prepare for the pathway forward and the report is vital to developing a considered and orderly implementation plan that advances animal welfare 
examines the needs of impacted individuals, business and local communities and identifies opportunities for future sheep industry growth. Murray Watt thanked all stakeholders who provided input into how and when the phase-out should be implemented, including what's needed to seize new opportunities, such as expanding onshore processing and exporting more of our high-quality sheep meat to the world. Just repeating, the panel now has until the 25th of October to report its findings. 17 past 12. Well, groups representing sheep farmers will meet this week to discuss how to help producers who are suffering from the fall in the prices that Dan was just telling you about earlier. Unsaleable sheep have been killed on farm or at sale yards after failing to attract a buyer and indicators for sheep meat prices remain on the slide. President of Wool Producers Australia, Steve Harrison, is calling for some sort of assistance for some farmers. Sheep producers and wool producers and others um, around the nation will get together via Zoom on Friday afternoon and just you know discuss the current drop in prices. Um, you know, certainly when we have a drought, we look at rate subsidies. We see that as the most equitable um, way of relief, I suppose, some small way of relief. So whether or not you know there could be a levy that could be you know reduced by MLA to help sheep and lamb producers going forward, we certainly got to look at something because yeah, the current rates for sheep and lamb. Uh, pretty dismal. So so that's something you want to bring to the discussion, look at where assistance can go to sheep producers right now who are who are suffering through poor prices. Yeah, I think that's the most equitable way forward, but you know there's um 35 on the Zoom apparently, so I'm sure there'll be some other potential ideas there rather than mine, but um we've got to try something um High lambing percentages are great at times, but you know, in our situation when we're very dry, they're often a bit of a curse. So, um, and current prices don't help. Do you think you'll get support for that at the table? Uh, I think there needs to be a review on all levies at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean, if you sell a sheep for under five dollars, you don't have to pay a levy. I think um, you know, it cost me and others, you know, ten to twelve dollars to sell sell a sheep at the moment. So. If we can get that up to $10 before we have to pay a levy, I think that would help because I'm sure there's a lot of producers getting the bill at the moment. President of Wool Producers Australia, Steve Harrison, speaking to Warwick Long about an online meeting between farmer groups that's going to be held on Friday. 19 past 12 and uh, just earlier on at the start of the show today, you heard from Dan Barnett, a farmer at Barra Coppen, who was just highlighting the situation at his place and he held that special barbecue at Fremantle on Friday. Just to highlight the situation, let city people know exactly what's going on on farm, the low prices they're receiving, and to highlight the difference in the prices between what farmers are getting and what you're paying in the shops. This on the text, Dan should do another barbecue at the Royal Show. I'll pass that on to Dan. 20 past 12. Well, as of today, Meat and Livestock Australia is going to adjust its market parameters to capture sheep selling for under $10 a head. Historically, parameters have been set to limit the reporting of sheep selling under $10, but given where the market is operating today, the parameters are being rolled down to include sheep selling for as low as $1. Stephen Bignall is MLA's Market Information and NLRS Manager. Steve, what's the catalyst for this adjustment? We've been seeing in key markets, largely Katanning, Bendigo and Dubbo, that there have been sheep sold under that $10. In, in some markets, it's not an issue, but in some it is. So we have been seeing that growing number of animals under $10 and, and have 
taken the steps to ensure we're reporting it. It, it, it has been being noted in the commentary by LMOs, but it hasn't been showing up in the market reports. You know, just from that anecdotal information that's flowing through, what sort of numbers of sheep are getting $10 or less? It could be about a, a thousand and, and that would make it about 3%. That's across the country? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And you're not sure, I mean, obviously you've got to wait for the numbers to start flowing through this week. You've only made the decision and it's been implemented today, but it could have an impact on the indicators. Is that what you're feeling? It won't have an in- impact on certain indicators. So the trade lamb, heavy lamb, light lamb, unlikely, but it will could impact merino, mutton and restocker uh, indicators, but not to a material degree. And I, I think we'll catch up in, in a week to see how that, that the new change has flowed through to the indicators and what the sort of current indicators are operating at and, and any delta. Did you ever think that you'd have to put in place this parameter that captures sheep selling for $10 or less in Australia? Um, hindsight's a beautiful thing. When they were implemented, the, the, the decision obviously was that there was it was unforeseeable um, and, and now we are in a position where there are sheep hitting those categories and so we are reporting on them. What does it say about the industry though? Uh, I think that it, it produces a hurting. The flock is the biggest it's been since 2007. It's grown 23% in the last uh, three years and there's a lot of supply in the market demand a little bit lighter than maybe where we'd like to be and, and those levers are, are, are putting a downward pressure on price. Yeah, they sure are in some circumstances. Let's take a look at those prices then, uh, Stephen, just see what is happening today and, you know, take a look here in Western Australia but also good to make the comparison with the East. What's the standout for you at well, this point? I think this is is the point is – from our um, voluntary NLRS weekly slaughter, is for the year to date, in 2023, mutton slaughter is up 90% in WA on what it was last year. So that huge increase in supply of sheep is what is really driving the, the price down. In Nationally, it, it's largely been driven by the weather and the rebuild. We've had the three years of rebuild and those years that have uh, been retained for the rebuild are now hitting the market. WA, there is, is also been some external you know, political factors impacting that. Mutton is up 90% and lamb slaughter is up 7%. So we've just got such an increase in supply putting pressure on prices in WA. Let's take a look at those prices then. What are you seeing? How are those prices moving? So nationally, the uh, mutton indicator is at 108. And in WA, both Misha and Katanning are operating below that uh, national indicator, uh, Michay, sorry, is at 99 cents a kilo carcass weight for mutton and Katanning is um, 84 cents a kilo. So Michay prices are operating better than Katanning. Michay is 8% below the national average and Katanning prices are 22% below the national average. Katanning mutton prices are the second worst in, in the nation at the moment only behind Northern Tasmania. But a lot of other areas in that mixed enterprise space and, and heavily um, merino areas, such as the Central West of New South Wales, are also performing quite poorly. So Cootamundra and Karkor are the third and fourth worst performing um, selling centres. How significant is that to be under the dollar per kilo mark? Where prices are at the moment, they are where they were in... in 
2013, so pretty significant, 10, you know, pr- the same price as 10 years ago. But I think there's actually a little bit to unpeel and unwrap around what the prices are. Is it actually specifications of animals has never meant more to what a producer is getting? So in WA, if your mutton is actually between 24 and 30 kilos, the average is 137 um, cents per kilo. That's 18% above the national average for that uh, weight category, which is 117 cents. So what that means is if you can hit some heavy weights in WA for your mutton, you're actually getting more than the national average, significantly more. But the inverse is true in WA, your mutton is between 14 and 18 kilos. The average price for mutton being sold in WA of those specs is 60 uh, cents per kilo. And the national average for mutton between 14 and 18 kilos is 101 cents. So if you're selling light mutton in WA, you're getting a 40% discount. So weight is super important at the moment. But who's prepared to put in the time, the effort and the money it's going to cost to reach those specs of, you know, between 24 and 30 kilo mutton uh, when those costs are so so high? I mean, you've got to start weighing up your options there, don't you? I do think, and I think it's probably a producer decision being made on a, on a case-by-case basis. Some producers may be able to get that daily gain and cost of gain where, where the sums work out and some may just want to um, liquidate now. So... It's probably, a, a, you know, you'd be able to find some producers out there that that adding those extra kilos do make economic sense and, and some that they don't. But but it does just show that those heavy weights are being rewarded. Yeah, the money's there if you can hit the specs. But how many? Do you have those numbers, Steve, to show how many are actually getting into that category here in WA? So I do in, 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 in the lighter spec... 800 uh, animals are in that light spec that's getting quite heavily discounted in that 24 to 30 it is 10 11,000 are in that in that spec and then when we dig down and see what WA is um, how many WA sheep are in that specification it's 700. Yeah that's a big difference then so not many are, yeah. are getting that. Uh, and the lambs, what's going on there? I mean, we're, we're you know, we're, there's still some quite a few lambs on farm and we're just about to hit the spring flush. We are. Uh, one thing I would say just before that is the, the fall in mutton for WA has been, has been two, over 200 cents and it's 74% reduction. But over east, even though the mutton indicator over there is higher, it's fallen 78%. So the fall in mutton price has actually been greater in over the east but like you said Belinda what's happening in the lamb market WA is performing a bit better in the trade lamb indicator so um, the national average is 435 cents per kilo for trade lambs in Katanning they're getting fetching 401 cents per kilo carcass weight and Michel is um, getting 382 cents per kilo carcass weight so um, WA is operating at a 10% discount, but we're not the worst performing state in the trade lamb indicator, which is a positive. Mm. Okay, we'll, we'll take all that we can get at this point, Stephen. Looking forward then, I mean, as we said, the spring flush upon us. How are you reading the situation then from this point onwards? So we don't do price forecasts, but but I suppose the prices are where they are going into the spring flush and the influx of lambs and mutton that we expect. and, and I, 
in historically in the period of spring, um, sale yard prices do ease when there is an increase in supply. So uh, I suppose takeaway is the prices are where they are before we go into that usual period of plateauing prices. Uh, Stephen, good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Cheers, Belinda. Stephen Bignall from Meat and Livestock Australia with the news today that MLA will adjust its market parameters to capture sheep selling for under $10 a head down to as low as a dollar a head. On the text 0448 922604, there is a large number of farmers who do not know what it's like to shoot, shoot large volumes of sheep. The trigger gets so hot that you can't touch it. It's not easy to kill your stock that you've bred. They can still visualise it 30 years later. I think that's called PTSD. 0448 Text through and have your say. Half past 12 here on the Country Hour. And Tabarak al in the studio with the news headlines. In the headlines, the federal government is promising to regulate the online dating sector if it does not improve safety for users by the middle of next year. Popular apps have been put on notice to develop and implement a new voluntary code of practice amid serious concerns about dangerous behaviour on their platforms. It follows a report that found three quarters of online daters had been subject to some kind of online sexual violence in the last five years. The federal opposition leader, Peter Dutton, says the only viable way to achieve emissions targets is to include nuclear power in Australia's energy mix. The opposition has been calling on the government to embrace nuclear power, but today Labor released figures saying it would cost nearly $400 billion to replace existing coal generation with nuclear energy. Mr Dutton says examples in other countries show nuclear power would reduce power bills. And tens of thousands of climate demonstrators have marched through the streets of Manhattan and New York to start Climate Week. The protest is part of a week-long international effort to address environmental injustice and end the use of fossil fuels. More news at one. Thank you so much, Tabarak. Uh, 29 to 1 here on The Country Hour. Still to come, it's off to Mushay for the results of the cattle market. And there was a similar-sized yarding of cattle to last week, so around about 1,000 head, mainly pastoral cattle on offer. In response to the conversation about sheep prices, sheep sold at Katanning for $2.50 per head. That was Katanning last week, says Neil. Thank you for that. The text is 0448-922-604. Heading off to the Bureau of Meteorology now to catch up with Angeline Prasad. Angeline, how's it looking around the Southwest Land Division? Hi there, Belinda. Um, not a lot is happening uh, at the beginning of this week. Uh, pretty mild conditions across the southwest. Uh, we have got a weak cold front uh, that's moving through the bight. So that's creating a, a moist southwest flow across the southwest. So just a few light showers today, closer to the southwest coast. I'm not expecting much in the rain gauge. Tomorrow, we have got a ridge that's uh, digging in across the southwest land division, but it's uh, extending across the northern parts of the southwest land division. So that allows that moist southwest flow to extend a little bit further inland uh, across agricultural areas. Uh, so tomorrow we might see uh, some very light showers extend southwest of uh, Southern Cross to about Geraldton to about um, Esperance. I'm expecting um, generally less than uh, 
0.5 millimeters of rain, though they could be very isolated, 0.5 to 1 millimeter, but it is going to be on the very light side. Certainly across parts of the lower west and southwest districts, we might see a little bit more rainfall tomorrow, but up to 1 to 3 millimeters, maybe isolated 5. Um, and that uh, southwesterly flow continues into Wednesday, um, but yeah, very light stuff, um, and I do expect uh, some uh, very light showers across the Great Southern on on Wednesday to continue, but again, it'll be less than 0.5 millimetres. Um, later in the week, we have got the West Coast trough developing, so we do see some very warm temperatures develop across the northern and eastern parts of the southwest land division, temperatures getting into the low to mid-30s. Um, this West Coast trough will move uh, east later in the, uh, uh, towards the end of the week, so we might see a little respite in those uh, temperatures. I'm not expecting any rainfall uh, with that uh, West Coast trough later in the week. It's going to be mostly heat-driven. There will be a mid-level cloud band associated with it, and we might see very odd um, light showers uh, uh, here and there, but, yeah, nothing out of the ordinary. And then for northern and eastern parts, Angeline, what can you see? Well, the north of the state is looking rather dry this week. Uh, so clear skies, I'm not expecting expecting much weather across the north. Uh, we might start to see one or two very light coastal showers for the northern Kimberley, but it, again, it's going to be less than a millimetre, generally dry, and we do see some heat building across the western Kimberley uh, towards the end of the week. Um, across the Gascoigne and gold fields today, we have got an inland trough that's moving northward, so that's generating a weak cloud band. Might see... Uh, isolated showers and even a dry thunderstorm through these areas extending to the Eucla tonight, but that cloud band contracts into the interior and dissipates uh, tomorrow. And then the warnings this afternoon? Uh, no warnings uh, for land areas. We do have marine wind warnings out uh, from the Ningaloo coast uh, to the Gascoigne and then from the Lewin to the Esperance coasts. Angeline, thank you for going through those details. 25 to 1. And Richard Hudson is here now to look over the weekend and see where the rainfall fell. Yeah, so from 9am Friday through to 9am this morning, for the entire northern and eastern forecast districts, not a drop of rain. In the southwest land division forecast districts, in the central west, nothing over a mil. In the lower west, Araluen had eight. Dwelling up nine, Gidgigan up five, Huntley nine, Jaredale had between six and seven mils, Carrigallon North, Pierce at the RAF base and Wanneroo all recorded five and Waroona seven. Then in the southwest, Bailing up 11, Beetle up five, Bridgetown eight, Cape Naturalist seven, Capel North five, Chapman Hill 13, Darden up had between seven and nine mils, Donnybrook, Ferguson Valley and four acres recorded five, Hentybrook eight, Logebrook 9, Manjum up 5 to 6 mils, Mount William 18, Mile up, Nanup and Newlands all recorded 5, Northcliffe 8, Pemberton 10 mils over 4 days, Quinnan up 5, Rosabrook 6, Shannon and Thompson Brook recorded 6 mils, Somme Creek and Tonebridge 5, Walpole Forestry 10, Willie Abrup 7 and Yanmar 6. In the southern coastal region, Albany and Bremer Bay recorded 5, Denbarker 6, Kimberley 7, Mettler, Mount Barker and Narrakup West all recorded 8, Warrajarra and Wellstead recorded 7. Then in the central wheat belt there was nothing more than 2 mils and in the great southern, Chaming Up recorded 6, Cherry Tree 7, 
Franklin seven as well. Uh, Graham Rock had ten mils over six days. Cogent up eight, and Quail up and Riverdale both recorded five. But, um, Bill, as you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, a Western Australian forensic science company is being used to verify the provenance of certain prawn products sold in Australian supermarkets. In other words, the scientists can actually figure out if the prawns have been caught where the label says they were caught. You might be intrigued to find out you know, who's actually doing that sort of work. They've also been hired, this company, to figure out if grain sold by Russia on the global market has been grown in Ukraine. <laughs> the company is source certain and the founder director is Cameron Scatting, who says they can sometimes pinpoint which paddock a crop was actually grown in. Yeah, so it's just, it's, it's a transparency metric. So we're trying to figure out um, the where a product has come from. So whether it be at the um, point of sale for a consumer. So a claim might be made with respect to its provenance or maybe how it's been made. The where is critically important and that's what we do. Now this is something that's becoming popular or it's, there's a demand for it. Why is that in agriculture? There is no doubt the demand is on the rise. I think agriculture has had a 10-year head start to some extent when you look across the other sort of verticals we work in, which can range from minerals and metals to things like diamonds. Um, the mineral sector in particular, you know, hasn't had to contend with a lot of the requirements around the, the traceability of products, whereas agriculture has. And so what we're seeing in agriculture is a rapid um, rise in, in things like sustainability claims, so the how um, products might have been grown or made. Um, underneath the how is obviously the where, and, and that's what we do. And so we're definitely seeing an increase in demand um, around services that we offer. Uh, in terms of the why, I, I think there's a, there's a few um, reasons for that. One of them is consumers. I think consumers are definitely more aware of the impact that their purchase has on not just the planet, but also the people that are inside the supply chain. I think the other driver is regulatory, and, and obviously that's linked to consumers or the general public, but we're seeing sort of unprecedented intervention from regulators around the world, trying to stop you know, damage to the planet, such as rainforests, and, and they're doing that with, with regulatory intervention around transparency, which is the where products have come from. Let's just take a few examples of what you've been working on. You've been asked to check where some grain has been grown. This is grain that ended up in Turkey, but it's a project involving the UK government. What's the story? Yeah, so we, we've been working um, around grain for sort of six to 12 months now. Um, one of the the use cases is, you know, grain that is hitting the international markets and has it come from, for example, Ukraine or Russia. And so we've been working in that area for, for six months. I, I, I didn't expect that grain would be something that we're working on. But um, as we see these types of geopolitical issues arise, we're certainly seeing a number of countries around the world more engaged and interested in knowing um, where these products are coming from. Uh, we're seeing that sort of emerge uh, into a broader um, service offering around, you know, grains generally. And so Australia has a, a, a popular um, green image, um, which, which is related to the, the how, but also the scale at which we grow our grain here. Um, and we're seeing engagement, not just from farmers, but also international markets to be able to verify provenance of grains, including from, from Australia. So I gather the interest with the grain that you're looking at is trying to prove as to whether it's been stolen, <laughs> whether it was grown in Ukraine and, and stolen by Russia and, and sold as its own. 
it's a really, really challenging topic. And I know that when we first um, talked about this work, that some of the questions that came about was, you know, some of the countries where this grain ends up, you know, obviously it's a key part of their food security. And sort of our response to that and my response to that is, is that, you know, we're not trying to take food off the table for these countries, but I think it's really important that when certainly countries or, or companies, especially large supply chain companies, make decisions about the commodities that they buy that they can trust in the information they're provided. And that includes country of origin or being able to identify a product that, that has certainly an integrity back to where it's been grown. And obviously with the tension associated with Russia and Ukraine, there's a lot of pressure on that global commodity supply chain. Is this forensic science able to be applied to the seafood industry? Because, I mean, seafood, the prawns and the fish, they move. <laughs> yes, uh, it certainly can. And I'm I think probably the seafood sector is probably our most mature offering. Uh, so we have a, a long-standing service in place with Australian wild prawns, which are the ones fished out of the ocean. So we can verify back to a, a specific fishery where a prawn has come from. Uh, so what we then do is we actually go into retail and into supply chains and take covert samples and then check, you know, are they true to the claim, which is often, is it Australian first? And then which fishery has it come from? And so I'm pleased to say that that wild Australian prawn supply chain is of very high integrity. I mean, that's obviously as a result of the commitment by industry, firstly, but also the work that we've done there. So when you when you go into a supermarket and see, for example, a MSC, which is a sustainably certified prawn, you can actually trust that it's actually come from that particular fishery. We also work in uh, fish species such as um, snapper, but also barramundi, uh, all of which are subject to or at risk of substitution with imported um, products. Like I said, really, really mature service offering for us. Uh, still lots of work to do, but, but seafood is certainly taking a leadership role there. How on earth can you prove it, though? As I said, you know, these animals are moving around all over the place, changing their location. Yeah, so it depends on the, the product type. And so in the examples of prawns, they do move around, but it is limited or constrained to the fishery, typically, that they are in. So as part of that program, as an example, we actually collect samples from all of those locations throughout the year, and we actually map or determine the fingerprint for those particular locations that's what gives us the capability to then go into the stores and take the covert purchases it's starting to make a bit more sense now that you've said fingerprint is it almost a bit like dna testing as well yes it's similar so dna profiling which obviously from a forensic science perspective it was kind of made famous by lots of those kind of csi type shows it's it is similar so dna is a it's effectively a matching right is is that profile the same as it's not dissimilar to that except we we measure a whole heap of chemicals um, that includes molecules but also elements and isotopes and we build from those measurements what is quite a complicated um, extensive profile which we call a fingerprint that profile can then be compared to products off the shelf just chatting to cameron scatting who's a forensic scientist involved with some clients who are in the agricultural industry now i gather you've also got some clients in horticulture people trying to prove exactly where apples have been grown why is that yes we've had a long another long-standing um, client in certainly horticulture here in wa so the the, what is quite famous, the Bravo apple, which um, you can see is that great big burgundy apple that you see on the store. So Bravo has been with us for a few years now. Uh, so what we're able to do with Bravo apples is we can take a, an apple off the shelf and verify the orchard by which it's been grown. Why does it matter? It matters because 
obviously they care a lot about their brand and they're investing in protecting their brand, but also Bravos are delivered by licensed orchards, so people that are allowed to grow the apple. And obviously it's a, it's a variety that was developed here in Western Australia and, and it's important that the royalties flow back to Western Australia if, if um, someone is growing them. So is that the state government is actually asking you to do that work? So our client is uh, WA Farm Direct, but obviously the state government, ha- um, we're the developers of the technology, and I think it's Fruit West that sits behind it, but our client is WA Farm Direct, who are at the front. They're the ones actually marketing the apple into the marketplace. I think what's exciting about that particular apple is they're you know in the process of going global, and you're seeing sort of Bravo apples end up on um, international um, shelves. What that means is that obviously with us in place or the service that Sourcet offers um, for Bravo Apples is that you know we can protect or help protect that brand in those international markets. Where do you see the greatest market growth for your forensic science? Oh, yeah, there's no doubt that farmers are being asked to provide more and more information about not just where but also the how they are growing their food. I, the drivers for transparency in the supply chain sort of come largely from an expectation by consumers or more broadly the general public. I think the macro trend here is we need to be better, um, not just the planet but also the people that might be involved in the production of these foods and obviously we sit in an international supply chain especially with with agri-food and so what are the drivers the drivers are obviously that and the, the move towards more transparency as the, as we move towards it there is more and more need to verify um, and obviously we do the verification of the where probably the more the more pressing one that we're seeing is the regulatory intervention so the new um, European deforestation regulation for example which basically puts expectations on brands in Europe being able to prove to a GPS coordinate effectively where timber and a whole heap of at-risk commodities which includes palm oil and um, beef and soy where these products have come from and so what we're seeing is as traditionally been driven by producers of food or brands trying to make sure that their supply chain has integrity is now a regulatory compliance one and and so what we're seeing is an acceleration um, of engagement um, which is exciting for us but I think it's also good for consumers as well Um, I think probably the bit to watch is going to be you know how how does it impact um, value chain in particular so as you start turning the lights on in these big global supply chains do we start taking away sources of our food which might put other pressures including upward pricing pressures on some of these other foods which you know obviously has other um, significant consequences. You've got an interesting background. You're not just, in inverted commas, a forensic scientist geek. You've also got a farming background, haven't you? I do. So I come from, I'm the son of a wheat and sheep farmer. So I come out of um, Coolan in the wheat belt um, and so look for any opportunity to get out of the the city. My dad actually finds it quite entertaining that um, despite, obviously, I wanted to leave the farm and go and catch bad guys, um, which I did and actually was quite good at, I've circled all the way back. I spend a lot of time talking to agriculture and primary producers um, because obviously the work that we do has carried me all the way back um, to that part. So. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting to you today. Thanks for your time in the country. Yeah, thank you very much. Cameron Scadding, founder and managing director of Source Certain, speaking to Richard Hudson about his work as a forensic scientist. And it sounds like they're getting more and more jobs in agriculture. 12 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. The Bureau of Meteorology's Climate Driver Update comes out tomorrow. And one thing worth looking at 
is the Indian Ocean Diapole Index, or IOD. In the last few weeks, the Bureau's been saying a positive IOD event is probably going to be declared. Ian Foster is a research officer with Deep Herd's Climate and Weather Group, and he explains what a positive IOD declaration means at this time of year. If the IOD is in the so-called positive phase, it tends to make moisture less available for the Australian region. So in general, especially over central eastern Australia, it tends to decrease rainfall. It doesn't mean it's dry, it just says there's less moisture available. Its typical pattern is it forms maybe late winter, goes through spring and then decays as the summer monsoon develops. So unlike an El Nino event, which will go over until next year, this one tends to go as soon as summer starts. This year, it's a bit later starting um, and looks though like it may be a bit later finishing because the combined effect of a few things going on could mean the actual onset of the Australian summer monsoon, like the wet season for northern Australia, may be delayed. So it may be hanging on a month or so later than it otherwise would have done. Having said that, for the, say, the southern bit of WA, especially the, the cropping area, we're getting into a period when it's drying out naturally anyway. Mm -hmm. So it probably would have had a greater effect had it cranked up a bit earlier. It may have a bit less of an effect now because it's getting late in the season. So typically with an IOD, uh, if it is going to go to a positive event, that would usually happen in winter, which for grain growers, that means it's not great news because there's an expectation of a drier winter. But this year, it's sort of looking like it'll happen, but later in the season, so less of an impact for grain growers in terms of rainfall. Yes, and it's usually at its greatest impact at, say, in spring, late winter and spring, especially if it's combined with a concurrent El Nino event. Those two things have been going on, but they're taking a little bit longer to get into their fully matured phase. In any event, the dynamic weather or the seasonal climate forecasts are coming out with various modelling systems. They're not dependent on any official declaration of these sorts of things. They integrate what's going on with sea surface temperatures and pressures and all the rest of this stuff anyway that's combined within the forecast. So the outlooks we've been getting consistently for below normal rainfall are not sort of critically dependent upon these factors having any official declaration. They just The, the models just operate based on what they can see in terms of these um, patterns anyway. 2019 was the last time there was a, a positive Indian Ocean dipole declared, but can there be variations in the strength of that positivity? Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly, like, it's the same thing with El Nino events. No two are, are exactly the same. You can average together typical years and get, like, an average pattern, which gives you some guide of, of whether it's likely to shift rainfall in one direction or another. But any one event has its own unique signature. Because these things in the tropics don't operate in isolation. They interact with weather events at higher latitudes. So the impact on, on us is not solely just what's going on within the tropics. They have a role on us through largely exporting moisture from the tropics. And it's important to us because it depends then on how they interact with mid-latitude systems. But then, in a sense, we get affected by how active these mid-latitude systems are. So if they're really, really weak, it doesn't matter how much moisture is, it doesn't make much of a difference. Or if they're very strong and they're re an irregular system's coming through, it's less of an impact on maybe not having as much moisture from the tropics. So the way each system evolves and how it interacts with the events to the south uh, are different. That's why, essentially, the... the the outlook systems are combining it into these dynamic um, climate models because they're trying to 
combined all of those competing influences. Just looking more nationally, Ian, the Bureau is expected to put out its latest climate update on September 19th. At its current one, it's saying that El Nino alert is is continuing and it's not. there's not enough signals there for it to declare an El Nino. Is your expectation that they will continue in that pattern or are you starting to see shifts that may actually see an El Nino declared? What the Bureau needs to do, as well as just using patterns of sea surface temperatures, which have, which have been very clear for a while, they also need changes in atmospheric circulation, that's winds and cloudiness across the tropics, to get to the stage of what they call a fully coupled event. And the reason why Australia does that, in that because we're well to the west of a lot of this stuff, the bit that affects us is when the tropical circulation to the north shifts and so they're really waiting to see clear signs that that's actually happening because then that means, should that happen, the impacts on Australia are likely to be greater. So we'll just have to see how it goes. There's some hint in recent weeks that the winds are starting to change a bit and the cloudiness a bit. But again, with all of these things, you need to be clear that you're seeing a signal and not just weather noise because they are a series of intraseasonal pulses that go through the tropics so it can get active and quiet at different times and these things move through as waves so you really need to make sure you've sorted out the uh, the seasonal signal let's say from the shorter term weather noise. If that does happen and an El Nino is declared what does that then mean for the coming summer particularly if we go back to Western Australia where there's likely to be a positive IOD if an El Nino happens what does that mean for the coming summer? Historically, the impacts of those things, if they're concurrent, it tends to be again in winter and spring, and it tends to actually weaken for us for summer. For Eastern Australia, it tends to roll on a bit further. So for Southern WA, because it's been, I guess, likely to be later developing, and we're rolling into a, a historically drier period anyway, it's just less likely to be a wet summer. So it may not mean a lot in practical terms. The thing to to note is just to see how the climate forecast is still consistent. So they're still sort of expecting the summer is likely to be drier than normal. That doesn't say there's not going to be thunderstorms or individual events where some places may get a lot of rain. But overall pattern is it's more likely to be drier than wetter. Ian Foster is a research officer with Deep Herd's Climate and Weather Group, speaking to Joe Prendergast. Five to one. Kaluda Station has taken home the trophy from the 2023 KPCA Livestock Handling Cup. And you heard a little bit about this on Friday's Country Hour. Almost 60 competitors had a go this year at the event, which showcases low-stress livestock handling techniques. A team of young women from Dampier Down Station didn't take the podium, but Georgie, Peter and Yipper were proud of their efforts, being the first of all the teams to complete the course successfully. Oh, it went amazing. Um, we were a bit nervous, we were really nervous, but we took our time, we really worked together and we pulled through. So you pulled through, but it wasn't without a bit of work. There was one of the one of the cattle was quite flighty. Peter, how did you how did you actually get control of the mob? Um, so we kind of split sections in the sense. So Yipper and Georgie stayed with the main mob that had a totally different energy level and I kind of focused on him and then we kind of used him to facilitate more movement and the rest of them around the course. Where did that kind of knowledge to be able to do that, where does that come from? Oh, every <laughs> every kind of information source you can look at. Like uh, obviously everyone older than us, we try and learn them as much as we can. Our bosses, home at Dampier Downs, uh, leading industry exports. Like you can learn pretty much so much from everyone. It's really important. 
And Georgie, what's it like in the ring here at the the Livestock Handling Cup versus back in the yards at home? Um, it's definitely different. I feel like here we got a chance to take our time and really like focus on studying the cattle and like uh, definitely at home it's a lot of like get the job done and like obviously still focusing on the animals and reading the animals but there's a job to be done and this is the same. And Georgie what about the whole event for the industry how do you think this impacts on you know the younger people coming through and, and the kind of learning and education you get to have? I think it's an amazing opportunity for like us so like a station people want to just get together like we don't get very much of an opportunity to and just to show people what really goes into station work and that it's the thought that goes into the care of the animals and how we handle them and like to get the best out of them. What about next year? Do you think you'll be back and competing again, Yuffa? Considering I've only done this for a few months, next year might turn out even worse or even better but um, <laughs> I don't know yet. What about you, Georgie? Do you think you come back? I definitely would. If I'm in the area then and like working on a station, I would love to come back to something like this and hope that it's bigger and that there's more stations here and like more people coming to watch because I think that it should be like it should be something that people are really interested in and like should be promoted. Really, it's amazing. Yipper, Georgie and Peter from Dampier Down Station in the Kimberley speaking to Michelle Stanley at the 2023 KPCA Livestock Handling Cup. The champions on the day were Shelby, Liam and Darcy from one of the Calida Station teams. Well done. Two minutes to one to the markets and at the Mouchet Sale Yards today, the final tally of cattle sold was 1,031. Only 52 calves sold. Terry Birkin's been at the sale. Hello, Terry. Can you go through the prices? Hi, Belinda. Numbers have been consistently around the 1,000 head mark for the last month, but it is still quiet for this time of the year. Partial cattle dominated the sale, again with the odd exceptional pen of very well-bred local steers and heifers amongst the mix. The weaner steers gained slightly, more due to breeding and condition, while feeder cows held up well, primary cows eased 10 cents a kilo. Local villa steers were selling from 228 cents to 336 cents, while the heifers sold from 200 cents to 248 cents a kilo. Local yearling steers to feed lots and paddocks returned 210 to 292 cents, while finished weight sold up to 268 cents, and local heifers selling from 146 to 280 cents, weight and condition dependent. Young pastoral steers started at 80 cents for plainer, lighter weights, and up to 270 for better types, while young pastoral heifers ranged from 80 cents to 216 cents a kilo. Grown steers sold from 154 to 238 cents, while grown heifers returned 164 to 236 cents a kilo. Feeder cows started at 50 cents, up to 200 cents, while medium to fat cows were selling up to 210 cents a kilo. Slaughter bulls sold from 160 to 228 cents, and the best shipping bulls realised 306 cents a kilo. This has been Terry Bergen for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at Mewshow. Terry, thank you for that. Back at Musha again tomorrow for the results of the sheep market. Thank you so much for all the texts on sheep prices today. So the difference between what producers are receiving and the prices you're paying in the shops. We couldn't get to all of the texts. There's so many coming through. But after one today on the world today, it's also taking a look at this particular topic. So keep listening. News time now. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.